Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Good morning, everyone. We're really glad that you're here. Our seats are stationed a little differently coming out of the conference. We put them together. We asked for volunteers to do it. They did an awesome job. They're just a little different. So you guys are kind of looking righty, right here, right at Lawrence as he plays the bass. So I'll try to come over here for you. Hey, we have so much to celebrate, but I want to start with Veterans Day weekend. Veterans um, are men and women who often just volunteer and say, I want to serve. I want to serve. I want to give of myself. I want to put myself potentially in harm's way. So I want to recognize servicemen and women, veterans uh, that are in our room. If you wouldn't mind, would you please stand so we can recognize you with a little applause. Veterans in our room, come on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate you. Appreciate you guys. Informs uh, them. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. We're going to have a baptism at the end of the service, uh, at this service, and then some more at our next service and more at our other location. Whew. You talk about living the good life. That's what we're doing here. So let's talk about the good life a minute. What the heck is it? If you Google it, you're going to get 10 billion options to respond to. 10 billion. If you look it up, it's going to insinuate that the good life is chasing after the good things, mostly material things, and actually capturing them. So sometimes the good life is viewed for only those people that have the resources to get the cars, uh, the houses, the boats, the vacation homes, to have all the pleasures that uh, money can buy. But, you know, from a Christian point of view, you have to scratch your head and say, well, not even from a Christian point of view. I mean, just look at the look at the news feeds out there of our of the people that seemingly have it all, the looks, the money, the talent, and still their lives fall apart. So, somewhere along the way, that definition begins to break down. We're going to see what the good life is from a biblical point of view, and it is upside down and backwards from what is often talked about in our culture. You have to remember. Peter's audience are people that are facing persecution simply because they've decided to follow Jesus. They're facing persecution because somewhere along the way they made a public declaration and people know you're a Christian, not by birth, but by choice, because you're not, you're not just because your family were Christian doesn't make you Christian. And so Peter's followers are facing this. And it's 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 really hard. And what we're going to see is Peter encourages the followers to stand fast in the grace of God, which is critical. And so everything that we'll talk about today is really designed for a Christian's ears. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, some of this may not land on your ears uh, very clearly. And secondly, I want to say this, the things that we're challenged to do and be in this passage are only possible by the empowered Holy Spirit working in our lives. This is, this is not something you just kind of try at home on your own, okay? So it's cautionary, uh, and I think that will help us. And so um, I don't think, I don't want to be presumptuous, but I don't think anyone here is facing physical harm because of your faith in Jesus. Some of you might be marginalized, might be criticized, might be uh, somehow discriminated against maybe in the workforce or friend group or social group because of your faith. 
But that's not the same thing as physical, which we'll see. But I don't want to minimize what you're going through because what you're going through is real. It's actual and it's real. And so I just want to, I want to pause. I want to pray that God would use his word. We have a lot. This is our largest passage that we'll go through. Chapter 8, I mean, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 8 through 22. And the reason for that is the closing illustration is Jesus. That's Peter's closing illustration of what he talks about. And we just have to get through it. So let me pray for us that God would speak to us through my words, in your ears, through his word, and uh, it would make a difference in our life. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you so very much for uh, a wonderful weekend when we talked about living um, as your ambassador sent into the world where we live, work, and play. And so, Lord, I, I know for some here today, they come with burdens. They come um, tired or worn out. Lord, would you use your word to challenge and encourage us to give us strength to face the next day? But Lord, would you use it to help us when faced with uh, marginalization, discrimination, because of our faith. This is why we're in this book, Lord. So use your word and speak to our heart, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting question is how do we live out the hope we have in Jesus every day, daily? How do we do that? The Christian life is daily. It's not weekly. If you're still trying to live out the Christian life with a stepping stone from Sunday to Sunday, you probably are experiencing a great deal of defeat and disillusionment in your life. It's a daily journey. Not only that, if you've endured a lot of pain or hardship in your life, you know pain and hardship makes the days go by very slowly, and oftentimes you're going moment to moment, moment to moment. And that's where I think Peter's readers were. They were living moment to moment. And so in verse 8, he's going to talk about, hey, when you're, when you're faced with this, here are some attitudes that you need to have in the Christian community. Uh, chapter 3, verse 8, finally, meaning he's concluding this kind of discussion, he's summarizing being persecuted unjustly for our faith. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, and humble. When you have a bad day at work because of the pressures that were put on you, all of us know what it's like to come home at the end of the day and take out our frustrations on the wrong people. Our roommates get yelled at, the dog gets kicked, the spouse gets chewed up, and they didn't do anything. But that's what pressure will do. It will cause you to react to the people in your community in a negative way. Or you might turn all that frustration on yourself. Eat too much, drink too much, watch too much. And so Peter says, hey, how are we to act in community when there's pressure on us? And he has these bookends. You need to be like-minded, which is unity. Unity in the church is one of the most fleeting things that I think there is, an attitude that we must fight for unity. We must lay aside our little petty differences and cling on to Jesus. We divide way, way too quickly, way too quickly. That's why Paul said it this way in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You need to work hard at it. But not just unified, you need to be sympathetic. You need to care about how people are feeling in your community. And you're to have love, abounding love for one another, brotherly love, familial love, where we care deeply and we're to be full of compassion, not just a little compassion. I need to not just care about how you're feeling, but I need to be able to have empathy and, and, and listen and care with you. And the other bookend is humility. 
Unfortunately, all too often, even when there's not pressure, the Christian community can be one of the least sympathetic, most judgmental, and least forgiving communities that there is. How can that be? How can you have received God's forgiveness and not offer it to someone else? We do. And Peter's pretty clear. Hey, look, when the pressure's on, you need to be like-minded. You need to fight for unity. Don't splinter and divide. In your outline, our attitude in community, humble and united. Humble and united. When the pressure's on, how are we to be? Lord Jesus, help me. Help me. Put aside my preferences, stay united, stay sympathetic, stay loving, stay compassionate, and stay humble with each other. If those are the attitudes I'm to have, and they represent actions, how am I to respond when I am persecuted? Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. I don't know about you, if you've ever tried, if you've ever been insulted, it's really difficult not to reply with insult, with a grunt, with a mm, with a whatever. I mean, just think about Baton Rouge traffic. Somebody cuts you off, you're on the horn, you're, and you're saying things under your breath, maybe not under your breath, maybe over your breath, maybe so the whole car can hear, maybe you roll down the window. We live over here near Tigerland, and there was a car in the five o'clock traffic poor thing. She had everybody jammed up. People laying on their horns. And I couldn't, I couldn't get out to help. There was, there were, I was thinking, Ugh. but particularly when I saw what was going on in the car, there she was with her head on the steering wheel weeping. Because her car died. She, she couldn't even get out. People were so, oh. And that's not even an insult. That's just an accident. Sometimes we think it's weak. Weak. I don't know if you've ever tried to replay, uh, re reply with an insult with something much different. Don't do this, but bless, but bless. Jesus said it this way, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn them the other cheek also. We're to offer a blessing. We're to be a blessing. We have been blessed, and so we can offer a blessing, and we can anticipate inheriting a blessing. These are the righteous actions that God says, that's awesome. So as we've been in Peter's letter, we've seen him reach around and grab passages that inspired him to think about Jesus and the Messiah. And so he goes to Psalm 34, which we read from as we started. And in Psalm 34, there is a promise about the Messiah that early Christians went, that's what this psalm's about. Now I understand it. It's a promise that none of Jesus' bones would be broken in his crucifixion. And so Peter goes there and says, look at this psalm, which talks about living righteous when it's difficult for encouragement from us. This is how to live the good life, Psalm 34. And so in verse 10 and through 12, it says this, for whoever would love life and see good days, to live the good life, must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. 
For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's Peter's way of illustrating what he's just said. Here's where it's said in, in the Old Testament. Here's where we are to, to see that this is actually words that Jesus would have known and would have motiv- motivated him We're to turn from evil. We're to do good. This is the good life. The good life has peace in it. The good life has no deception in it. The good life has good things in it. The good life knows that the Lord is watching the righteous. And even though we don't always feel it, he's opposing wickedness. And he's attentive to our prayer. So when we're trying to live out our hope every day. Our attitude is one thing. Our response, our response to evil and insults is to bless. Now that is a tall order. That's why I said when we began, this is for the Christian empowered by the Holy Spirit because it's very hard to bless when insulted. And yet Jesus came to this earth to be a blessing and would receive insult. And I think it's helpful to remember that God is looking at you. As you live, he's looking at you. As you live under discrimination because of your faith, marginalization because of your faith, he doesn't, he sees you. He sees you like a, a father on a playground. You take the kids out to the playground to play, they constantly look over their shoulder to see if you're on their phone or you're looking at them. Dads, leave the phone in the car. Look at them, because they're, look, they're looking. They want you to see them, just like we want to know. God, this is hard. Are you paying any attention? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm paying attention. The attitudes of humility and unity, the response of blessing. Okay, so if I was forced to say something in these moments, what should I say? What should I say? Given the opportunity, verses 13, 14, and following, here's what it says. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? The implication is people don't harm people that are eager to do good. But some evil people out there will indeed hurt you for doing good, particularly if they don't define good the way you do. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. That's a promise. You're blessed for doing good in the face of evil. And then reaching over to Isaiah, he says, hey, don't be frightened. Don't be frightened. Don't fear their threats and do not be frightened. Oh, well, that's a tall order, particularly if the threat is physical to you. I'm going to hurt you for what you believe. Ah, If I'm not to be afraid, what am I to be? Focused, focused. Usually when I'm afraid of getting hurt, I'm afraid of getting hurt, right? I don't want to get hurt. So I need something else to focus on. Look at verse 15. Just the first sentence is all I'll put up. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Oh my goodness. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. But in your hearts, sanctify Christ as Lord. Those are all English translations of the word. And in your hearts, hallow Christ. 
Make him the Lord of your heart. Put him there. Don't fear. Focus on him. I need you to focus on him. Because when you do that, things begin to change. When I'm focused on me in traffic, well, I'm yelling and screaming and honking my horn. If I'm focused on something else, well, my behavior will be different. If I'm focused on Jesus, I might stop and go, is everything okay? Is there some way I can help? Or do I just honk my horn and say, you made me late for my very important date? Which is really nothing, right? It's the kickoff or something stupid like that. It changes everything. So continuing, putting the whole verse up now. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord and always, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, living in the hope of Jesus daily. I need to always be prepared, but I need to do it with gentleness and respect. So given what are my attitudes to be? United and humble. What are my responses to persecution to be? To bless. What am I supposed to say? How am I supposed to be, I'm to be prepared so that I know what to say and when to say it. I'm prepared to give a reason for the hope that I have. As I said earlier, I don't think anybody's undergoing physical abuse here because of their faith. But all of us have something that we're struggling with today. I want you to take that. I want you to bring it to your mind, whether it's financial, whether it's relational, whether it's um, vocational, whether it's medical, whether it's physical. I want you to think, this is the most difficult thing I'm dealing with today. Now, I want you to fill in this sentence. Because of my hope in Jesus, I understand this situation this way. Are you prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have? We use this verse often to encourage people to have gospel conversations. The white ball that's available on the way out, that's what these are, right? We hope that you have a gospel conversation and you drop it in. These blue ones, they're for baptism, which we'll have today. And it'll be awesome. So Elena, you'll get one of those and you can take it and drop it in there, right? I will do it for you. But I don't know if you realize it, but this verse is under the context of you behaving radically different. Turning the other cheek, blessing instead of insulting back. Hey, what's with you? What gives? What makes you tick? What's going on with you? Oh, well, my hope is in Jesus. Doesn't mean I'm not sad. It doesn't mean it's not difficult. It means that I view the lens of my life through the enthroned Savior of my life who's been set apart on my heart, and now I give a reason for the hope that I have. Being prepared means that, I don't know about you, but I might have known yesterday the, a good reason for the hope that I have, but in the course of the day, I've forgotten it. That's why I need to open my book every day and spend, a, spend some time in God's Word. That's why I need to be a self-feeder so I can remind myself of these truths. So I can be ready, but I can still miss the opportunity because it always comes at the strangest time when we least expect it. Hey, you know, we've, we've challenged all of our staff to have gospel conversations, two between now and Christmas. Now, that's not something you can foster up, but it's something you can pray about. Give us an opportunity. Let me challenge you with this. If you say, God, 
I want to be, I'm going to get prepared. You give me the opportunity and you start looking for it. Be careful because it'll come. He wants us to talk about him. One of our staff members explained their story this way. I was moving my phone from the console to the seat. The kids were talking and then I hit the person in front of me in my car. I thought we were to go and I did, wasn't supposed to go. They were stopped and I just went. They got out. They yelled at me. I yelled back. We all apologized and then we talked about Jesus. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know about your strategy, but she, she said later, had I not been thinking about looking for opportunities, I might have just yelled and, and exchanged numbers and moved on. No one was hurt. I don't think there was any damage, but it was a tense moment. But because she had been saying, give me an opportunity, she had one. She had one. Man, challenge you to do that. You do it with gentleness and respect. You don't yell at people and you don't try to manipulate them. Look at the next verse. Keeping a conscious, a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against you your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame for their slander. You don't play games. You're not trying to impress it. God knows where your heart is. If you're trying to say nice Jesus words, but in your heart you're cursing and yelling and angry, that doesn't work. Most people can tell. God definitely knows. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than to do evil. The ends do not justify the means. If it's God's will for us to suffer as Christians, that's better than getting even. These are, these are, these are seriously high calling. Our actions and speech in your outline in the face of suffering, prepared. They're not casual. They're not haphazard. They're prepared because I'm praying daily and saying, Lord, help me understand my situation. Help me understand it in light of you being the Lord of all things. Help me understand it because I'm really struggling. And I want to I want to be able to declare the hope that I have in you, given any situation. Now, you need to understand, Peter lived this whole scenario out in his own life. Peter, a fisherman called to follow Jesus, the, the apostle that would deny Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. The apostle that would also say that he was the Messiah. The apostle who would be reinstated at the end of John. The apostle who the Holy Spirit would descend on and he would preach in such a way that thousands of people came to Christ. The apostle who would heal people who were lame would be then confronted by the leaders of the day and asked, by whose authority do you heal? And he said, Oh, you want me to give a reason for the hope that I have. The reason is Jesus, plain and simple. And there were so many people following Peter and John that the leaders, the Sanhedrin, the temple guards, they got jealous, it tells us, in Acts chapter 4 and chapter 5. They said, we need you to stop all this, and they put him in jail. An angel opened all the doors. God said, I need you to continue to preach about Jesus. They went back out. Those people that put him in jail said, hey, we told you to shut your mouth. To which Peter said, ah, you decide. I'm going to listen to you or I'm going to listen to God. I'm going to listen to God. Well, that really, really, really ticked them off. So they said, you know what? 
We've already put one person to death not too long ago. About, about a month and a half. We can do the same here. So they wanted to put him to death. And one of their own said, hey, look, let, let's not do that. Let's not do the whole death thing. Just beat him and release him. So that's what they did. They flogged him. I don't know about you, but that's pretty frightening. That's pretty frightening. What is even more frightening is how they responded once they were released. Chapter 5, verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. See, they saw suffering as a point of worth in their life. My life and my reasons and my faith actually are visible enough to be seen, criticized, and flogged over. I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that. And then it says, day after day in the temple courts, from house to house, they never stopped. They never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. And I'm so glad. Where did they get the boldness? Where did they get that? When Jesus was their example, they had seen the risen Christ and the Holy Spirit was their empowerment. As they yielded to the Holy Spirit and said, fill me and control me, they did things they didn't even recognize they were capable of doing. And then in verses 18 through 22, we see Jesus as the example. Unfortunately, these verses are a little complicated because of the, the, the analogies that, that Peter uses and the way he tries to illustrate what he's saying. So I want to tell you what I'm trying to say before I say it in case you miss it when I say it. Is that okay? Did you follow that? I'm going to give you the answers before. Okay. Our example in the face of unjust suffering is Jesus. Jesus is our example. First thing you need to know is that, and this is in your outline, he willingly died for the unjust. When he was faced with unjust, unprovoked persecution and physical harm, what did he do? He willingly died so that we might have access to God. When we behave righteously in the face of unrighteous behavior, what we hope people will see is not our strength, our resolve of will, but that they would see Jesus, which is exactly what people saw when Stephen was stoned. Verse 18, for Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus willingly suffered because it was God's will that he do so. That's why Peter said, if it is your will to suffer, that's better than doing evil. Jesus knew and predicted that he would suffer and his suffering would lead to death. And he did it to be obedient to the father and to bring us to God. And though his body was put to death, the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. The Holy Spirit brought life back to his body and he rose from the dead. 
The second thing you need to know is that Jesus patiently warned the disobedient. Jesus patiently warns those people that are not interested in him. Peter will say in his other letter, 2 Peter, God is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. God is patient. He doesn't want any to perish. And so Peter uses Noah in a roundabout way to explain God's patience and Jesus' patience. Look in verse 19 through 20. After being made alive, Jesus, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. What? Crazy. So you might ask, who are imprisoned spirits? What did Jesus preach? When did Jesus preach? Before we try to answer those questions, let me ask this question. You're talking to people who are enduring persecution by a crazy society that's upside down and backwards. And you reach back and Noah from the Old Testament, the builder of the ark, he's my example. Why in the world would he be the example? I'm going to tell you. If you think our world has gone crazy, it's nothing compared to AD 1, Rome. Nothing. And if you think AD 1, Rome was crazy, it's nothing compared to Noah's day. Noah's day was a hellacious, hideous, hedonistic, brutal party. Genesis chapter 6 explains it, verse 5 through 8. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that they were, uh, and every inclination of the thoughts of human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled so the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created with, with them the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in God's eyes. The next verse says, now this is the account of his family. And there's this description of Noah in verse 9. He was a righteous man. He was blameless among the people of the time. He walked faithfully with the Lord. Why choose Noah? Let's go back to the verses 18 through 20 in a different English translation. It's just a little more literal. The NIV that I read from earlier is trying to help us understand, and I think it helps us not in a helpful way. For Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Literally, it says, in which. In which I don't want to geek out on you in terms of grammar, but that's what it says. Is it, a, is it a temporal clause? After which time? Is it a locative clause? 
You're with me on this, and you care, don't you? No. Right? In which, not after he was raised from the dead, this passage doesn't say that Jesus descended, that went down. He went somewhere. It doesn't say that he did it after his resurrection and before his ascension. What I think it's saying is simply this, that the Spirit of Christ was in the, the mouth of the prophet Noah when he warned people, you need to turn and trust God. It didn't take him a week to build his boat. It took him a 100 years. And while he was doing that building, he was constantly telling people, hey, you need to turn because there's a flood coming. And Jesus, in the, uh, in the Spirit, preached the message of repentance through Noah as he was building the ark to the people who would die and be condemned. That's what I think this verse is saying. Here's why. Noah and his family were a minority surrounded by all kind of people that didn't believe in God. Maybe that's how you feel sometimes in your work or in your school or on your teams. And Peter's saying, we need to live up. We need to live righteously. Noah was righteous in the midst of a wicked world. Everybody around him was living differently. This is why Peter said Noah is a great example of how to live righteously when everyone else isn't. Noah witnessed boldly to those around him. And that's what Peter wanted his readers to do and what he wants us to do. At the time of Noah, God waited patiently, patiently. And he still waits patiently for people to turn to him and believe. Finally, Noah was ultimately saved. And so will Peter's readers. They will be saved. They'll be saved and they can be rest assured of that. And so I think that's why Peter uses Noah. So how do we, how do we display our hope in everyday living? It's with our attitudes. It's with our responses. It's with our actions. And it's as we look to Jesus who willingly died for sins, who willingly died for sins, Noah is an example of someone who lived righteously in a crazy time, demonstrating that there's a patient, the God of the Bible is patient. He wants you to come to him. He's patient with you. And speaking of water and being saved from water and baptism, Peter just, I don't know if he's dyslexic, I don't really know, but he jumps onto the water thing in the next verse. Look what he says. And this water the flood waters, symbolizes baptism. Does it? Okay. That now saves you. Now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from your body, but the pledge of a clear conscience before God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus. Here's what I think it says. In just a minute, Elena's going to be right here. And she's going to get into this warm tub of water. And we're going to tip her back, or I am, and then she's going to sit up. And this is, this is representing dying with Christ and being raised to life. Noah went into the ark. We go into Christ. The water represents death. And so being saved from it, we come out of it. This is what Peter's alluding to. It's not that 
This is what saves you, this action. This is an outward expression of an inward reality. And we believe that we're saved by grace. But, Paul, but Peter goes, yeah, think about baptism. You were, if you got what was coming to you, it would look like this. But because of Jesus, you, right? Make sense? You're saved by the water, from the water, from judgment. It's a great picture. And that's what he says. So Jesus is our model. He willingly died. He's patiently warned. But not only that, he victoriously reigns. So the readers of Peter's day, <coughs> they're struggling. And they want to know how this is going to end. Look to Jesus, verse 22. Who, Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, the place of honor and victory with the angels, with the authorities, with the powers in submission to him. And there you have it. There you have it. We're to look to Jesus every day. We're to be able to explain the hope that we have. So how are we to do this daily? With our attitudes. We're to love each other. We're to be patient with one another. We're to be forgiving to one another. We're to be united with one another. We're to be humble with one another. How are we to respond? We're not supposed to retaliate with insult on insult and evil on evil. We're actually supposed to bless. Well, if I get a chance to speak, what am I supposed to, what am I supposed to say? Well, first, before you speak, be sure you're prepared. Be ready. Be ready to give a reason for the hope that's within you and always do it with gentleness and respect. This is what you're, you're, to, you're to be ready. And who is our focus? Jesus because he willingly died for us, because he's constantly warning people, judgment's coming, be ready. And at the end of the day, he's victorious, as we will be also because we are in him. I don't know if that encourages you. It encourages me. This should be a great encouragement when we feel like we're the only person in the world at our office that loves Jesus and wants to do something that's right, that we're the only person in our family that doesn't lie and use deceitful speech, and we're getting together at Thanksgiving, and I'm already nervous about it. I'm the only person in my class that seemingly doesn't want to cheat. It's really hard to live righteously when everyone else around you is saying, screw it. Not to be overly vulgar, but that's what it feels like. And you're like, ah, where do I look? <laughs> Noah. Interesting choice. No, it's the perfect choice. It's the biblical choice. I thought, maybe we need to reclaim the rainbow. Maybe we need to reclaim the rainbow. It gets used in a lot of places for a lot of things. But what if we reclaimed it to say that God's not going to judge the world, that he's patient with the world, and that I can live righteously in an unrighteous world? That was my wake-up thought today, and they're usually not that good, so put a lot of salt on that. I want you to be encouraged today with whatever you're going through. Jesus wants to 
change your attitudes. He wants to change our responses. He wants to prepare us to be willing and ready to speak of him when we have opportunity. And when we lose our way, he wants us to look at Jesus, who in the face of insults died, who warned and who reigns victoriously. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for our morning. Thank you for a chance to be in your word. I pray now that these words of yours would be a great encouragement to us if we are faced with living life seemingly alone, marching to the beat of a different drum, living under the definition of a completely different understanding of what the good life is. I pray that Jesus would strengthen us, empower us, and allow us to live righteously right where we are. Lord Jesus, give us opportunity to speak of you, particularly in the hard days, about the hope that we have in you. May we be ready. May we be eager. May we do it with gentleness and respect. You are our focus, Lord Jesus, and we worship you. Please stand as our team leads us in this beautiful song, All Hail King Jesus. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.